The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel. And I'm Sarah Storm. And this is Hello Monday. Now, Sarah, as many of you know, is our show's producer. And today I'm bringing her on as a host because she's really the perfect person for this conversation. We're going to talk about the writer's strike. Sarah is also a working actor, and I know a lot of you know that, too. She's a SAG-AFTRA union member. And we're sitting down to record this just days after her union has authorized its own strike. Sarah, what does that mean? So it doesn't mean that anybody's going on strike, but it does mean that as the SAG-AFTRA negotiating committee is sitting down with the AMPTP. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Yep, those guys. It means that if my union, SAG, and the AMPTP don't agree on what both sides think is a fair deal by the time SAG's current contract expires, about 98% of our union has said to the negotiating committee, you can tell us we're on strike. The writer's strike is about writers, for sure, and people who work in creative fields, like potentially actors. But we wanted to program a special episode about it here on the show, because I believe that paying attention to this strike prepares us to understand something about the changing nature of any work that involves human creativity and ingenuity. And Sarah, you knew exactly who we should speak with. I absolutely did. My friend Laura Jackman is a member of the Writers Guild of America West. The WGA has about 11,000 members between its two branches, East and West, and Laura's been a member for about 10 years now. There's two pieces to the work that any WGA member does. There's the Creative Act, which is coming up with stories and pitches and creating characters. And then there's the labor piece of their work. That's doing the writing itself, but it's not only. Like with any kind of knowledge work, the more senior you go, the more responsibility you assume. At the most senior level, writers are also known as showrunners. And if you think of individual shows as companies, which is a great framing Laura gave us, the showrunner's kind of like the CEO um, who is managing the expectations of the shareholders who, like, in this situation, there's, like, the studio, the networks, right? They're managing creative things and business things. Basically, all final decisions roll up to them. And these companies, Jesse, they're not particularly small. According to Laura, those shows can cost anywhere from $30 million to $150 million per season. Um, And an aside, I never really understood what a showrunner was. Well, listen, in our recent Good Job series, we talked a lot about what makes a job good. You know, agency, sufficient resources to live a decent life, that kind of thing. And there's a weird thread in some of the conversations around work, like when enjoyment or creativity or service or really any aspect of humanity seems to creep in, it's like you can hear the pay cut coming. Writing used to be a pretty stable middle-class job, but just like in many other industries, there's a push for people to do more even while they're being paid less. And the writers, well, they're pushing back hard. So what happens when a group of workers says absolutely not? Well, to tell us more, here's Laura speaking with Sarah. Yes, we are literally fighting to preserve television. 
-hmm. And that's not an understatement. We are fighting to preserve a method of working. We are fighting to preserve a method of replenishing our ranks and training new showrunners. We are fighting to, to prevent our compensation from being whittled down to zero while the companies reap billions, not millions, billions of dollars in profits, specifically off of the shows and the movies that we create. That's what we're fighting for. It is a, it is a huge existential fight. Well, let's back up one second. So for people who maybe they're first hearing about the Writers Guild of America during this strike, what's the Writers Guild and how does it help labor in the entertainment industry? So there are two uh, chapters of the Writers Guild. There's Writers Guild of America West uh, and there's Writers Guild of America East. We are one of uh, many Hollywood unions that uh, make up the entirety of the folks who make the television and the movies that people all around the world enjoy. So, and and please forgive me because I know I'm not going to um, get all of them correct because Hollywood is a union town. New York is a union town. Chicago is a union town. And we rely on every single one of these unions and guilds to make the stuff that we make. So there's the Writers Guild. There's the Directors Guild. Um, there's IATSE, which is essentially all of the crews, and that encompasses many different areas. There's TAG, which is the Animation Guild. There's the laborers and the plasterers. There's the Teamsters. Um, there are so many labor unions. And they are the folks who drive the trucks. They are the folks who set up the porta potties on site and the trailers on site. They are the folks who are doing all the lighting work and all of the scenic building and all of the everything that you see that goes into a production. That is union labor. That is union labor. And that is what we're fighting for. And this strike, unlike previous strikes, we are really fighting for the future of union labor in television and film production. So you were just talking about L.A., Chicago, New York, or, or union towns, and you're also describing this current strike as really being an existential crisis. So I would love to understand a little bit more, like, what's gotten us to this point? What's threatening the union labor? What's changed about the environment you've been working in for the last 10 years? So it's hard to sort of designate one root cause, but if we were to choose one, it would be the advent of streaming. So streaming broke the model that had been very successfully utilized in Hollywood for, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Uh, they broke the model completely. And now they're saying, well, unfortunately, because we broke the model, we cannot afford to compensate labor their fair value. We have to think about our shareholders. We have to think about our stock price. We have to think about the economy and COVID and all of these things. And uh, we just can't afford to pay you for the value of the shows and movies and content that you create. And to that, we say, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. You did before and you could do it again. As we sort of see it, they are pleading poverty while spending billions and billions on creating the content that forms the foundation of these companies. So they've gone from something like, you know, spending $5 billion on content in 2019 to spending $19 billion on content just last year. They're saying, we can't afford to pay you because we're not in profit yet. We're not profitable yet. Well, on the other hand, they're trumpeting their gains to their shareholders on their public earnings calls. And I mean, literally, as of a few weeks ago, 
uh, Warner Brothers Discovery was saying, oh, guess what? We actually are in profit for Q1. We are making a profit. Streaming is profitable, and we anticipate it being profitable uh, for the rest of 2023. So they're telling us, on the one hand, we can't afford you. And on the other hand, they're saying, this is the brightest possible financial future. Give us all your money. Invest in us. It's going to be worth it to you. So you came into this industry at a time where it sounds like the pipeline of early career writer to showrunner, like the people who make the whole thing, was pretty stable. I would love some context and to just understand a little bit better, like, what worked in that system and why it's so important to maintain. So the way that our business used to work was it was a self-replenishing business, So when you came in as a staff writer, which is the lowest level writer on the totem pole of this ladder, you would be hired for usually a minimum of 20 weeks, and then often that would get extended. So if you came in to write on a broadcast show, so something that aired on ABC, NBC, CBS, something like that, um, you would come out to LA, uh, you would start working probably in May, the writer's room would be running for, you know, two, three months. Then you would start prep, so you're preparing to shoot. Then you would start production, so you would start shooting. And the writer's room would still be going. And so when you wrote an episode of television, you got to participate in prep. You got to participate in production. So that means that you got to be there on set while your episode was filming. And you were both learning and you were also doing your job and getting paid to do that job. And then you were also there for post or post-production. So you were sitting there in the editing room. You were giving notes to the editor. You were standing in when the showrunner couldn't be there. And all along, the showrunner was acting as a mentor and helping you through this system. And you were learning how to collaborate with every single department and sort of coming into your power, not just as a writer, but also as a manager of people and as a future showrunner. And the episode orders would be so large and... Uh, uh, production would be so close to the start of the writer's room that every writer was going through that system and every writer was getting that opportunity to learn on set and in production and in post what it meant um, to actually produce one episode of television. You were getting the full experience. And that meant when you developed your own shows, you were better prepared and you knew exactly what everyone was talking about because you were taught on the ground, what everything meant. And then streaming came along and you saw the base offers to join a writer's room go from 20 weeks with the possibility of extension to 15 weeks, to 12 weeks, to 10 weeks, to six weeks. And so the way that I describe it is, let's say that you're hired for a job and you're promised a yearly salary. And then they say, actually, you still have to do the same amount of work that you would have done in a year, but now you have to do it in six weeks and you're only going to get six weeks of salary for that. And then in some cases, you're going to be forced to sign a contract that prevents you from seeking out any other work while we wait and figure out if we're going to bring you back for another season, even though you did this work in January and the show doesn't start shooting until December. We're just going to hold you and keep you locked here for no additional pay while we figure out our game plan. So I think anybody could hear that and say, that's not fair. And 
Along with that, the pain has gone down dramatically. So our MBA, our minimum basic agreement, it outlines the minimum that the studios are allowed to pay you. And it genuinely feels like every studio has gone through every portion of the contract and figured out a way to Frankenstein modes of employment that tap into every single loophole so that they're allowed to pay us the least amount possible for the least amount of time possible and then send us out into the wind. So what happens to people who have basically gone from being paid for let's say 20 to 26 weeks a year to being paid six, what are you seeing that do to the workforce? Um, You're seeing desperation. You're seeing desperation. You're seeing folks who are not advancing in their careers because they just simply don't have the time to get up to speed on the show. You're not developing your voice or your voice for that show specifically. The showrunner is barely getting enough time with you to see if you can actually hack it they are by necessity being forced to rewrite probably every single one of the scripts extensively because if a studio or a network, if they get 10 scripts at once, I guarantee you they're going to say, oh, we have a big problem with the storyline in episode 102 and that's going to blow up the rest of your season and there's no writer's room to come together and solve that problem, which is what our job used to be. People cannot afford to make a living doing this. This used to be a clear path to middle-class employment. We're not talking about wild riches. We're not talking about 200 episodes of syndicated, you know, 90s sitcoms. We're not talking about that kind of money. We're talking about the ability to live in Los Angeles, to pay your rent, to buy groceries, to get antibiotics. We're just talking about the bare minimum. Also, when I said earlier that it's destroying the business of television, How can you become a showrunner if you have never been in a true writer's room, if you have never been to set to see your episode be filmed, if you never experienced the type of mentorship that you used to get from a showrunner that used to be standard in our business? So what seems to be the plan? If if the workforce sort of evaporates, what's the plan for making television? I think they, like many other industries in the United States have become addicted to this short-term quarterly uh, juicing of profits and juicing of their stock price. They have become used to uh, a vibes-based reward system, which is what the stock market is, right? Um, That they want to be rewarded on a quarterly basis. And they have completely lost sight of the fact that we are the labor that makes the thing that determines their profits. They've lost sight of it. And this strike is our way of sort of getting their attention and saying um, the export of American television shows and movies, that is not something that will ever fade. That is your business. We are trying to save you from yourselves. Let us do that for you. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, more on the writer's strike. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. So one element to the writer's strike is labor contraction, asking people to do more but paying them less. But that's not the only issue at stake here. There's something else on the horizon that's affecting all of our jobs that people are talking about a lot that Laura has a very strong take on, AI. Here's Laura again in conversation with Sarah. So we're talking about the studios attempting to forcibly contract the labor market. But there's one other thing that's happening, um, certainly to knowledge workers everywhere, although I feel like the writers are now the first big public example of this. I have heard like threads of an attitude like, well, AI is going to help us. What are you hearing about how they want to use AI to maybe mitigate some of this? I will say that I don't think many of us thought that AI was a big deal until they just point blank refuse to talk about it in our negotiation. And I think Adam Conover put it best. Adam Conover is a member of our negotiating committee. I'm going to get his quote slightly wrong. But in the discussion uh, about AI, it was sort of the equivalent of when you ask your employer uh, to not shoot you in the stomach. And they're like, well, we're not going to comment on whether we're going to shoot you in the stomach or not. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, God, are you thinking about shooting me in the stomach? That's not great. Uh, And then I think it became a lot more serious for people. I want to say just and I'll I'll speak sort of from my uh, personal perspective on this. AI is a predictive text generator. It is a plagiarism machine. Full stop. The way that AI works is it scrapes the Internet for pre-existing stuff, copyrighted stuff. I don't see how you turn that into a screenplay without getting sued. And I'll tell you this, paying a screenwriter $200,000 or $250,000 is a lot cheaper than all the legal fees when it comes to litigating who owns a piece of creative material. So the Guild's position is that you cannot use a piece of AI-generated material as a piece of literary material, that it's not something that you can copyright and and hire someone to rewrite, that that they have a certain plan behind it. And I'm sure that that plan is evolving. Um, But I have seen some of the scenes that AI has written. I have seen some of its pitches and it is a nothing burger in my opinion, but it's also something that we need to regulate so that they can't further destroy 
our business and what we've historically done for them and created for them in the process of chasing quarterly profits. In the event that AI turns out to be more like, let's say, a search engine or I'm searching for examples of like tech that stuck around, like what, if anything, do you feel optimistic about when it comes to AI? I, I, I was, and again, this is a personal perspective. I don't care about AI. It, I have read some of the 30 Rock scenes that AI has written. And if a writer was to turn that into me, I would say, this isn't ready to discuss in the room. I'm going to send you back to the drawing board and I want you to put some voice on it and I want you to put some spin on it because these literally just look like descriptions that you might read from an outline. And there is no nuance. There is no human connection. There is nothing there. It is a void. If I was to get that script and I was hiring, I would say, this person isn't even getting an interview. There is nothing of interest here to me. So when it comes to idea generation or pitching or writing an outline, um, I will hire a writer. I would rather hire a writer. And that's what we're trying to preserve. We're trying to preserve writer's rooms because I guarantee you a machine that can scrape the internet for stuff that has already been written by other human beings is never going to be as good as assembling a room of six to 12 strangers or old friends or whatever and you're talking about your experiences. That is where the best stuff comes from because it's the most human stuff. And I think we've proved that with the shows and the movies uh, from all of previous human history. I think we've proved the value of the thing that we make. So AI to me is a flash in the pan while at the same time, I mean, there was an article I think in the New York Times yesterday that said human extinction at risk from AI. I mean, that doesn't make me feel great. I don't want AI knowing nuclear codes or having the ability to, to fire a missile or control a drone. Uh, and I also don't want it in my final draft. What kind of innovations have you seen in your industry that have worked? Like any industry evolves. Is there anything in the last like 10 years of your experience that that's working well? As far as the... As far as the technology side of things? As far as the technology side of it, as far as the labor side of it, have what advancements have happened that seem net positive? It's a tricky question, right? Because I think the value of labor is that it is human. I haven't gotten to experience the LED soundstage uh, that like The Mandalorian uses and, and a bunch of other productions use. It is still prohibitively expensive to create those environments and to work within those environments. Um, I am much more intrigued, I'll be honest, by people who are able to capture stuff in camera. And that just means you're literally shooting the thing as it happens in the place that, that they're shooting it. I just wanna say this, it's not an accident that CGI has taken off in the past 10, 15 years, partially because of the technological advancements, partially because they are not union workers. And it's shameful that they're not union workers. It's terrible for them. And there have been serious abuses in that industry. They're not getting a fair shake. And they're working so hard because as these enormous properties have come sort of rumbling through Hollywood, um, they've needed more and more and more CGI to make those viable. And it's really grinding people 
to a dangerous degree. And there have been plenty of articles in the news about that. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly exciting what we can do with image generation and CGI and all of that. But it does come at the expense of a human workforce. I wonder how you think about what's happening um, in with the WGA right now and the threat of automation, like how it compares to other industries that you're aware of that are being disrupted. Like, do you think what is happening to writers or to the entertainment industry is unique or is it similar to like what might be happening in a different job? It's definitely part of a pattern. It's absolutely part of a pattern. I mean, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond just quote unquote went bankrupt and went out of business, right? Why? Not because it was a fundamentally unsound business model, not because the stores weren't successful. It was actually massively successful. But then you have vulture capitalists who move in, they drain the resources of the company, they use it to do uh, to pay out dividends, they use it for stock buybacks, and they just gradually sap the blood out of every industry. We've seen it with journalism on a massive scale across the country. We've seen it in a ton of other industries. And the difference between those industries and the Hollywood labor unions is that you cannot make what we make without us. And they're trying. They've absolutely tried. They set up shop in other countries and try to import content from abroad um, because they know that those same labor protections don't exist. But in, by and large, in most of the shows and the movies that, that people watch, that they want to watch, um, there are unions behind that, and those unions have a lot of power. And so instead of letting them, you know, sort of whittle us away to nothing, we are choosing to stand up and fight and say, no, we're not going to let you erode this thing that we have carefully constructed, this thing that we've carefully built. Um, we're going to fight for the future of our business because we love what we do. We love making the stuff that we do. But love alone will not sustain us. That's why I left theater. Love alone could not sustain me. Well said. Um, what's your biggest fear about the strike? I think my biggest fear is just that um, there are real people who are suffering here. There are writers, there are lower level writers especially, who are suffering. And the longer we're out of work, the more they are suffering. And that applies to IOTC crew members, that applies to um, Teamsters, that applies to anyone who is brave enough to not cross our picket lines. It applies to all of the businesses, the, the local parts of the economy that depend mm -hmm. on television and film production um, all across the country, all around the world. We know that we are inflicting pain. We're aware of that. It's one of the reasons why we built up, I mean, currently, I think we've raised uh, $2.2 million, and that's growing every single day as part of the Entertainment Community Fund. There are all these funds that have sprung up to support writers and crew members and members of the entertainment community at large who are suffering because of this labor action. So we are focused on taking care of people, and the studios are focused on um, making us sit out as long as possible. And we are returning that by making them suffer as much financial pain as possible. Again, I am worried about the human element of this. I have 100% confidence that we're going to win. Um, and our goal is to just reduce that amount of suffering as much as possible while the studios uh, continue to engage in this brinksmanship. What's your greatest hope for what the strike might bring about? Sustaining our business into the future for decades. 
that is my greatest hope. And that is what we are going to achieve. It is our shared goal at the Writers Guild. Um, we have a very successful business. We have a very profitable business. It may not be exponentially profitable. It may not generate stunning returns every single financial quarter, the way that some of these tech companies want it to be. But we have a model and it works and it generates great livings for the people who are engaged in it. We are simply trying to revert to a system that worked for decades previously, and we're going to achieve that goal. What advice do you have for somebody who's looking to enter the entertainment industry specifically as a writer? Come join us on the picket lines. Honestly, um, come see what we're fighting for. Uh, I had a friend joke that the conversations that she's having with other writers on the lines have a very like three drinks in, all feelings out quality to them. And it's absolutely true. People are kind of laying it all out there. And even for those of us who are a little bit more financially insulated from the pressures of a strike, um, we're sharing stories that we've never shared before, just about the platonic ideal of this business and the great rooms that we've been in and the great productions we've been a part of. And I think part of that is telling those stories to this younger generation who wants to join the industry, letting them know their value and letting them know their own worth in this fight. It's not an exaggeration when we say we are striking for the people who come after us. All of the things that we've gone on strike for before, health coverage, residuals, coverage over the internet, coverage over streaming, the, not all of these things are things that those striking writers immediately reap the benefits of. But we are striking so that the people who are on the precipice of joining our union, that they will get those things in the future. I have one last question to toss your way. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about what's at stake for the industry, and you have done such an elegant job of explaining it and making it really clear, I think, to people who are maybe not as familiar. What's at stake here for you personally? The very basic bare bones answer is I can't afford to buy a house. I would like to be able to afford to buy a house. That's one small thing. Um, but really, uh, you know, I sold three pilots in the fall of 2021, two of which are still alive. And um, I have so enjoyed working with the studios and the networks and the executives, the creative executives, who are my partners on those projects, uh, and many of whom have privately confessed that they support us 100% and they support us getting what we deserve in this fight. Um which means that if either of those projects goes, if either of them gets picked up a series, I will suddenly be in the position of being able to hire writers. I will suddenly be in the showrunner position, in the management position, and being the leader of this team. And I want the resources to make sure that my team is properly supported. I don't know if you necessarily get into this business thinking about equity for the people who are going to come after you or the people who you're going to hire. But that is the ladder we've constructed. The goal is that you enter as a staff writer and you emerge as an executive producer, showrunner of your own shows. That is the whole goal. That is the reason the ladder exists. Uh, and I want people on my shows to be able to say, she was a great boss. She was a fair boss. She made sure that we were compensated. She made sure that we were valued. She brought us to set. And she supported me when I became an executive producer and showrunner. Um, I just want to keep that ladder going up and up and up for everybody else who comes up after me. 
That was Writers Guild of America West member Laura Jackman. To learn more about the current labor auctions in the entertainment industry, check out the links in our show notes. The basic premise of our show is that it's about the changing nature of work. The fight between the writers and the studios is all about that change. But work is changing all over, and we should talk about it. This week on Hello Monday Office Hours, what was your industry like when you started out in your field? What changes have you observed since you began? We'll talk about it all on Office Hours, 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. We'll go live from the LinkedIn news page. If you're not sure where to find us, well, send us an email and we'll send you a link. It's hellomonday at linkedin.com. Wait, what was that? Hellomonday at linkedin.com. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Wallace Truesdale, Kanaya Rogers, and Michaela Greer have our backs every week. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. And I'm Sarah Storm. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. I was wondering if you had gotten tired of talking on podcasts yet, and I'm really relieved that you're not. I, I will never get tired of it. It's so weird to realize that we've we've known each other since the last—we didn't meet at the, the writer's strike. Like, there are people that I met on the picket line in 2007, but that's when we met. That's true. Yes, the summer or yeah. the spring or the summer of 2007. So, mm-hmm. I, and television was not even a glimmer in my eye then. I was so all in on theater. Little did I know. <laughs>